Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cudsy Vine for September 3rd, 2023. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone. Welcome to the show, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, tonight on the show, uh, an exciting show. In about 20 minutes, uh, David Mark from the Washington Examiner. Um, he is the managing editor of the magazine they put out every weekend. He's going to come on the show and be our guest. He's been on to talk about his books in the past, when he worked at CNN. Uh, so this will be about the third or fourth time David has been our guest. So excited to talk about all kinds of national politics with him, including his home state of California. Um, but until then, we're going to talk about all kinds of different topics. But one thing that we, we discussed pretty thoroughly, but we missed one key element of, is Donald Trump will stand trial in four different places, but Georgia being the latest one and maybe the most serious charges, the date has been set there, and it is sometime, I believe, in early March, right in the middle of the GOP primary calendar. So now that we know that is the date before any um, injunctions get filed and a possible delay to the trial could happen, that it will or will not. Um, but let's look at that as the date, discuss that, and then talk about who that impacts. So, um, Catherine, this date, right in the middle of, uh, you know, in March, right as the Republican primary race will be unfolding and possibly could even be decided, what do you think that means for um, the political landscape? I think it's it'll be very confusing. I think, um, you know, there's some people that are going to vote for uh, former President Trump no matter what. You know, they're not they're they're you know diehard fans. He could be in prison in an orange jumpsuit and they'd still vote for him. But the other um, the other Republicans who may you know may or may not be fans, but may look at the landscape and think that he's the best their best choice depending on who's still in the race at that point will be confused by you know well what happens if he gets if he gets convicted you know how so i think it's confusing it'll be confusing yes tim uh same thing what does that mean for the political landscape well it probably doesn't mean as much uh, as it might otherwise if there were, I don't know, a competitive race for the Republican nomination. Of course, the Washington trial, the one you alluded to, uh, is going to start on, they'll be doing jury selection the day before Super Tuesday. And if the polls are right, the, the, it'll, the race will already be pretty much over by then. We will have had Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. 
And if Trump, you know, runs the table on those, I mean, that it, it, it isn't going to matter about Super Tuesday unless people are running to make a good showing and be vice president. So I, I, I don't think it's going to matter that much, uh, other than the fact that that uh, Trump's legal problems are going to help him with Republican voters in the primary. So, Yeah, I think as far as the race... You're absolutely right that, you know, these charges actually have buoyed him. That's what the polls have shown. You know, the latest charges in Georgia, the polls following it, he went up some. Um, you know, the, the Republican pollster actually does a ton of focus groups. Sarah Longwell, she wrote today, and I guess it was the bulwark, but it was reported on Political Wire how, you know, there's just nothing that's going to move Republicans off of Trump, seemingly. And so yeah. people just have to – understand that and she's a never trumper i mean she's someone that doesn't like donald trump she now appears on um you know crooked media's uh podcast probably more than a republican fair at this point um she's on msnbc a lot now but um i think that's the point there but now as far as republicans go if you're a republican insider you really have to hate the state because now if he loses one of these um, trials, and one of these trials disqualifies him from, you know, being able to be on the ballot in certain states. And I know there's a lot of legalities how things are listed, or if it just very much more likely tarnishes his reputation even further. As amazing as that sounds, to where more swing voters, um, persuadable voters, just won't support him, or Republican voters just won't support him and skip the race or just skip the election, there's no way to get out of that. Um, there's really nothing, though, Republicans can do, is it, Catherine? Well, no. They can try to put pressure on the various, uh, you know, courts that are that are um, convicting him, but they don't seem to be willing to move. I mean – I don't. I don't think they're going to have much luck with that. Yeah, and and Tim, um, looking at Donald Trump wants to move these trials till after the election. Um, that means the whole thing gets covered and just hangs over the election until uh, you know through the entirety of it through the general, which is far far more politically problematic for him. Why does he want to push this back? Well, I mean, you know, if the trials start after the election and he's won the election, then he, in his mind, he can make everything go away. That's what this is all about, yeah. delay, 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 delay. But there's some judges that are not impressed by that. Judge Chutkin, uh, uh especially uh, the district judge up there in Washington, D.C., she just she just said, you know, she didn't care who he was. He's a private citizen, and he's like anybody else, and the trial will happen when it happens. And it's absurd to ask to have it put off to 2026 when, I mean, this trial is going to be happening over three years after the events that even caused the trial to start with. So, you know, it's... 
you know, and and you, and you see what's happening down here in Georgia. I mean, they're talking October 23rd and Trump and them scrambling all over the place to try to separate themselves from the other defendants and get away from that because he certainly cannot afford to go to trial and have a negative verdict facing him that he would then have to carry into the election with it because that'd kill him in the general election. It would just wipe him out. So he's he's got to do everything he can to delay these trials. And, and that's what you're going to see, guys. You're going to see delay, 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 file motions, do this, do that, appeal this, anything that they can think to do to start these trials after the general election next year. Yes, um, I, and do we think he, any of it will be very successful? Have either of y'all heard that there's a – I guess there's really no precedence for this given his former position that um, he would be successful in any, any of these delays to that point, would there be? I don't think so. I mean, mm. even um, the Repu- even Republicans in, in Georgia are saying, no, we're not – no, you don't get to – Delay it, no. So, yeah, and, and yeah. Tim, any insight that we are going to start? No, I don't. I mean, you know, there's a lot, lot. Judge Shelton said uh, it, it doesn't matter who he is or what he's doing or or anything else. You know, I mean, she compared it to a professional athlete that if you know they had a a, a, a ball game or something coming up and they were on trial and they ask for a delay, and, you know, that that isn't going to happen, and it isn't going to – I don't think it's going to happen with, with with him. That's why his lawyers have got to come up with, you know, delaying tactic, tactics, uh, court-related delaying tactics, uh, this, that, the other, every, everything they can do uh, to just delay it another day, another week, another month, and, yeah. and just try to push it out like that, but – uh, that especially probably isn't going to work out too well in these state cases like, you know, the Fulton County case or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Trump really don't have any control over that because, you know, he he, he, can't, yeah. make, he can't make nothing go away there, guys. And, and an interesting thing is a lot of times when you have a 77, possibly 78-year-old defendant by that point, um, you use medical um diagnoses to try to delay trials of course that would be a killer because if you are um pointing out how old you are and of course your opponent you're trying to point point out how old they are and you look more infirmed by trying to defend yourself also be hard to be on the campaign trail if you're using that as a a delay tactic that kind of takes one away from i don't don't think they're able to use that but if they did it would create new political fodder for us to discuss well, let's talk about, yeah. Catherine, you alluded to um, Georgia. Um, uh, Colton Moore, um, state senator from northwest Georgia, aren't we so proud, Tim? Uh, you know, he <laughs> wants to come after Fannie Willis. And um, a former Democratic uh, senator, which she switched parties, and no one can figure her out other than she's probably in a district where she will not be long for that district, Um she signed off this bill too. They want to come after Fannie Willis now. Interestingly enough, um, 
Brian Kemp, Republican governor, is giving zero support to this, um, you know, going after her through the state government means. Um, what do you make of all this, Catherine? Oh, you know, those are those, those two. Uh, what's his name? Coleman or Colton Moore? Yeah, Colton. Um, I mean, I think it's like uh, j- just you know, don't get between him and a camera. You know, he just wants some attention. And that state senator, she's crazy. Um, yeah, she's not. I mean, she's not going to get anywhere because she's not going to get reelected. Um, but I'm kind of proud. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have almost zero agreement with Brian Kemp on anything, but I'm kind of proud that he he's standing up for our state. Like, I feel like I feel like he really um, has put his put the politics aside and looked at the um, situation and recognizes that. Um, it, it it hurt our state, and I I really I I admire that. I think it was um, quite courageous of him, really, because it puts him in a terrible position with the Republican Party. So I I, I think that was good. Yeah, and Catherine, not that I'm going to vote for him or anything. What? Well, well, he he made he can't run for governor anymore. Um, sorry about that, guys. I about got uh, somebody. Troubles drove into me from Pennsylvania. Um, if you heard the horn honk. Um, anyway, before I get to Tim, um, uh, I wanted to mention something to you, Catherine, since you didn't get his wonderful campaign literature during the 2022 campaign. One of his signature issues was that he wanted to take away all the tax breaks and all of the funding that you know Georgia uses to support the um, movie industry, and it really didn't seem to be because he was like, oh, this is an unfair tax break. It was more about let's keep those Hollywood liberals out of Georgia and move the entire movie industry. And, of course, we know what a boom that's been to all parts of Georgia, so he's pretty much out of step with members of his both, both, both parties since, you know, Nathan Deal was one of the big proponents of that. Um, so that lets you know a little bit about him. Um, Tim... What is your thoughts on the moves by these state senators, but probably more importantly, how um, statewide leaders and most importantly the governor reacted? Well, well, let's just dispense with Colton Moore first. (laughs) This is no surprise at all. We heard plenty about this guy before he got elected up here. We were just... The the guy running against him was a little to the right of Genghis Khan, and we were we were we were hoping that guy would win, <laughs> and, and we're almost sure that he would. But Colton Moore barely defeated him, and he's just a totally loose cannon. Uh, the female state senator who switched parties. Uh, Put you in mind of Vernon Jones a little bit, don't <laughs> Exactly. You? The way she's acting, and that's self-explanatory there since we've had the <laughs> pleasure of interviewing uh, Vernon Jones several times over the years. Um, Governor Kemp is sticking to his guns with this thing. He stuck to his guns. 
when faced with Trump before the election or at, right after the election when, you know, Trump was trying out everybody down here and Kemp just told him, you know, no. And he's basically doing that. Now, Kemp is, is positioning himself very well, by the way, if he wants to make a U.S. Senate run. Don't you think so, David? I think it can help general, but if yeah. Republicans look like they think, how they think about Donald Trump, and they see him aiding and abetting the enemy in this case. Well, now they, wait a minute. They may. I know we wait saw last time, but what if some Republican can run against him and actually use it effectively in the primary, and he doesn't get out of the primary? I think at some point these people are so – ideological on you've got to go after Democrats, that that becomes the salient key issue. Now, I do think Joe Biden's campaign and Fannie Willis can use this for a lot of cover, um, you know, with these charges because Brian Kemp's given it to him. So I definitely think in the short term it's going to have some impact really across the nation, but most importantly in Georgia, one of the most key states in the campaign. Tim, you said, wait a minute, tell me why. Yeah, because, you know, you and you briefly alluded to it, you saw what happened last year. They had their chance to get him, Raffensperger, everybody. And not, not only did they survive, but they won big. They beat Trump's hand-picked people, especially yeah. Kim. And it, yeah, I, it, uh, the, the the more Trump said, the stronger Kemp got. I don't I don't know why it's different in Georgia, but it seems to be different in Georgia, guys. And, but the UGA poll that, that the AJC published this past week, you know, it, it showed that those Republicans are very much like everywhere else around the country and how they think about Trump. I'm beginning to wonder, and we will need some more data points to know, but I'm just beginning to wonder. Maybe the problem is um, uh, David Perdue. Maybe David Perdue just didn't excite anybody. I know he won in 2014, but maybe he won in 2014 because Georgia was just just that Republican at that point. And in the past, I mean, it's amazing that a state can switch that much in six years. But in six years, maybe it just shifted that fast. And if a more dynamic candidate runs against um, Brian Kemp, who knows? Maybe a Colton oh, Moore oh, I know. runs against him. Get Herschel Walker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you know. dynamic candidate are you talking about, though, David? I, I mean, I, and by I, dynamic, I, I don't the mean party good. On trial to go to jail right now. In this I, state. I don't mean a states person. I don't. I didn't mean anybody good. I mean, they love crazies. I mean, Colton Moore, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andrew Clyde. Um, Candace Taylor with more money and more profile. I'm Because <laughs> they love Whoa. those wing nuts. Look Whoa. at how many times those people have knocked off better candidates around the country. Yeah. Except for Candace Taylor. She didn't knock off anything. Uh, I mean, the highlight of, her, of any of her campaigns has been when she got a lot of press because her bus broke down on Interstate 75 <laughs> near Dalton. Uh, that was the highlight of her campaign, dude. I mean, <laughs> I, I, don't, I, I, don't know, I think I think Kemp's in a good in a good place. I do. Yeah, we shall see. I do think it's interesting. 
Um, it, it's, it's, but it's, there's a lot of chapters to be written in politics until we even get there. I mean, you know, for John Ossoff, and this is going to be the last word on this before we get to David Mark, John Ossoff, his plan is just going to be be a good senator for the next two years and then right. run that race when it happens, whether it's a weekend right. camp, somebody different, a more popular camp. But right now, I want to welcome back into the Kudzu Vine for the Washington Examiner, um, David Mark. Welcome back, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, David, I want to say, when you, the last time you came on, you were with the Washington Examiner, but because we've had you on before you were with them, but now you're the managing editor of the magazine. So just tell our listeners a little bit about that magazine, how it publishes, how they can find it, just some, and what your role is with it. Sure. It's a bit of an internal move. Same company. I've been at the, uh, the company for about six years now, and just a little over a year ago, I moved over to the Washington Examiner magazine, which is just what it sounds like. It's differentiated, in a sense, from the website. It's, you might call it a bit old school, but hopefully in a good way, where you get longer features articles, more in-depth pieces that take longer to do. Uh, I'm fortunate that I'm able to write more in that capacity. So I have worked with staff writers from the website at the Washington Examiner and also with a lot of freelancers, outside writers. And sometimes it involves taking pieces that come in pretty much as is. Other times they have to be – pieces have to be written substantially, and that's just part of the job, but kind of what keeps it interesting. Yes. Well, you still do write a, a decent amount because I, I looked up to see what you had written recently – and one piece really got my attention, and that was the piece you wrote about best-case scenario for Democrats and Republicans in the U.S. Senate. Kind of give us an outline of the best-case scenario for Republicans and the Democrats. Right. For 2024, the political game, the, the landscape, is there's so many plausible scenarios, as you all experts know, and we're just discussing with the presidency, up for grabs, the House. The Senate, it's generally been deemed that Republicans have a better chance of winning majority. They're down now effectively 51-49 against Democrats. And this is traditionally a really tough map for the Democrats. It comes up every six years. There's a bunch of races where Democrats hold seats in states like Montana and Ohio that are just – pretty strongly read at this point among others. But if there's any good news for the Democrats, it's that the kind of political low-hanging fruit got picked off the last time the, this map was up in 2018. Democrats lost seed, Senate seeds in Indiana, North Dakota, and Missouri. And while that's no fun, it kind of those are all strong, strongly Republican now. Democrats don't have to worry about it. So it's a long way of saying Republicans still have a good shot of winning the majority, but even if they do, it's not going to be by an overwhelming margin. Their, their real best shots are in West Virginia, which is strongly Republican, and where Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has not said if he's going to run again. But even if he does, I think he'd have a lot of trouble, and I'm basically factoring in him not being there anymore or being replaced by the – Republican Governor Jim Justice, 
Then there's a Republican pickup opportunities in Ohio with Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown and Montana with Democratic Senator John Tester. There's a few other possibilities, but I think those are the big ones. So if Republicans won all three of those, that would give them a 52 to 48 majority. But, of course, none of those things are sure, are sure to happen. Probably the most likely is West Virginia with Joe Manchin not returning for whatever reason. Either he loses or he just doesn't run again. But it's entirely plausible Democrats hold on to seats in Ohio with Senator Sherrod Brown and Montana, Senator John Tester. And if that were to happen and all the other seats stayed the same, it would be right back where it was in the first two years of Joe Biden's presidency, a 50-50 tie plus Vice President Kamala Harris breaking that tie. And I'm assuming Biden wins under that scenario if Democrats hold on to those two Senate seats. Of course, anything can happen in politics, as we all know, but that's where it seems to be going. It goes beyond that, though, the numbers. The real importance for Democrats under that scenario is they would be done, they'd be rid of the two biggest obstacle of changing the Senate filibuster rule. Senator Joe Manchin in West Virginia, and Kirsten Sinema, the independent senator in Arizona who used to be a Democrat and still caucuses with him, but not very well liked. If somehow she could be replaced by the, the, the almost certain Democratic nominee, Congressman Ruben Gallego, uh, that would, even though it would be a bare majority, Democrats at that point could change the filibuster rule and eliminate that 60-vote threshold, which, of course, makes passing anything so difficult. So a lot of contingencies there, a lot of ifs, but it could happen. Yes. Well, before we move on to the best case scenario for Democrats, um, let me uh, ask you about West Virginia. I saw a poll this week that said um, if Jim Justice is the nominee, he defeats Joe Manchin pretty handily. It may be even 10-point lead. But if Alex Mooney, congressman from uh, West Virginia were to be the nominee. Manchin actually led by Mooney, uh, led led over Mooney. Um, is there any scenario in which Jim Justice is not the nominee, and it's some other Republican that Manchin might have a fighting chance against? Well, that same poll showed Justice leading the Republican nomination fight over Congressman Mooney pretty strongly, but you got to remember, these are relatively low turnout affairs in Republican primary. That West Virginia, from the 2010 to 2020 census, lost about 3.2% of its population, about 60,000-some-odd people. And so the state's population is just shrinking. And under those circumstances, you tend to get the diehards to come out and vote, which would probably favor Mooney because he's more of a Trump-type he also has the backing of a lot of Washington, D.C., more conservative outfits like the Club for Growth and others who can throw a lot of money into the race. Moody's kind of a backbencher. He actually used to be a state senator in neighboring Maryland, and he was even a state Republican Party chairman in Maryland for a number of years. And then when an open seat moved up, he moved across the Potomac River over to West Virginia, and he's been in office since winning his house seat in 2014 so i don't think it's likely but not impossible also not to be morbid about it justice has had some health problems not a spring chicken exactly i think he's had some heart condition 
Uh, he's kind of a large guy. I think he's about six foot seven, and his health. Just look at him again. You don't want to presume anything, but it's not exactly uh, a young buck out there. But you know, assuming that he's okay, you got to make him the favorite for the Republican nomination, and then to win that seat over Joe Manchin, if Manchin even runs again. Yes, I said a few weeks ago, there's probably going to be some voters in West Virginia in the general election that say, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden because he's too old, and they're going to vote for Jim Justice for senator. <laughs> a place where you don't have a four-year term, you've got to build seniority. So there, there's irony everywhere. Well, let's get over to that other side. Democrats, best-case scenario for them. Yeah, well, as I was saying, I think the, the best-case scenario is that 50 50- – 50 split in the Senate, unless something unexpected happens, that's likely what their best case scenario. It is possible that in Texas, Senator Republican Senator Ted Cruz could be endangered. Not sure how likely that is. He's, of course, a loathed, hated figure by many, not just Democrats, but even a lot of Republicans really don't like him because they feel he's condescending and talks down and all kind of, his personality is very grating, but and there's of course been debate about how much of a battleground Texas is becoming, and I think it is in the in the coming years, but it may not be there yet. So unless there's a surprise in the likely Democratic nominee, Democratic Congressman Colin Allred wins that race, it's probably probably the best case scenario for Democrats is 50-50 with Vice President Harris breaking ties again. Yeah, it, it, we just had a guest from Texas, uh, a Democrat, and she was not bullish on the chances in 2024. It's a much slower pace, although you just have to wonder, because Ted Cruz is so unpopular for just his own personality and then duplicitness. And, um, you know, even when he did something right and, and uh, called out, I believe it was Rwanda or Uganda's um, laws against uh, uh homosexual folks he um he got attacked from the right for that um so yeah you know takes it from all sides um yeah i I don't find Cruz to be a a real sympathetic character but i gotta say he's probably the most most likely to win that race what's interesting about texas i think also is these abortion laws and other social issues that are being trying to oppose by localities where they're trying to actually, in some cases, stop women from leaving the state for a medical procedure. And Texas, the reason the population is growing, among other reasons, is you get all these high-end professional jobs, and they've got world-class medical centers, they've got engineering firms, and a lot of professional-class jobs. And people don't want to move to a state where they have these what I would call medieval rules on how to treat women, et cetera. So it's not just Texas in that to, that situation, but it's just most striking there because the, the political lens and focus has been on Texas and when it might actually become purple and become competitive again. Yes. Just one more right and I'm going to pass it to Catherine and Tim for all kind of other questions. But about three or four weeks ago, we had Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer on the show. We asked her about Senate races. And she said one of the most interesting things we've had in months on the Kudzu Vine, she said that she actually believed Rick Scott, if you ran against him in the right way on senior issues like Social Security and Medicare, he would be more vulnerable 
than Ted Cruz, and that would be the Democrats' best shot. Um, your thoughts kind of on that, and, and how vulnerable do you actually think Rick Scott could be in Florida? It's an interesting question, and I have a lot of respect for Rachel and her analysis. I hadn't really thought of it quite that way. Of course, the, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, of course, the big challenge for any Democratic nominee is Rick Scott is loaded. He's, I think he's the wealthiest member of the Senate, probably in all of Congress. He can pour tens of millions of dollars into a re-election campaign if you want to. And in Florida, of course, you really run in major media markets. It's hard to do retail campaigning. So he would have a build advantage there. But I've got to say, I, it struck me that he must think he's at least somewhat vulnerable because he was out this past weekend, weekend uh, meeting with President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden when they visited Central Florida after the recent hurricane there. And he was very complimentary long way of saying he is probably trying to court swing voters. And some of that may be trying to rib Governor Ron DeSantis, the Republican presidential candidate. They have a famously terrible relationship, DeSantis and Scott. But you've got to think Scott you know, is vulnerable. Florida is a really interesting question in that it's undoubtedly moved to the right, and it, Trump won it pretty easily both times. But I talked to a strategist. Democrats down there and others, and they say not to write it off yet. Part of the problem is the state Republican Party is so strong, and Democrats haven't really had had their act together. They're trying to rebuild it. But if you look at the numbers, it should be a relatively competitive state. So I didn't really think so until this past weekend when I saw Senator Scott out there with the president and first lady. That that made me think he must – have reason to believe he, he needs to still win over some swing voters. He can't just go for the MAGA heads anymore. Mm. Yes. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I'm going to pass it to Catherine. I'll pass it to Tim. And if there's something else just burning that i got to ask, I'll, I'll do that at the end. Catherine? Sure. Hey, David. Thanks for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it, especially since it's Labor Day weekend. With oh, great to be back with you. It's always fun. And Labor Day is is what inspired my question. <laughs> um, there's a lot, a lot of lot of talk these days, much more talk uh, than in the last couple of decades, really, about unions. We've got, of course, the Hollywood strike, and then there's a lot of talk, um, you know, Starbucks unionizing, uh, Amazon unionizing, um, even I, I I work for Planned Parenthood and. Even some of our affiliates are, are unionized. So do you think that this um, re-energizing of unions could have an impact on the 2024 election? That's a great question. And the short answer is yes. And I think this really began during the COVID-19 pandemic and mm-hmm. really the aftermath where employers kind of realized they had to treat workers better and they needed to get workers on very quickly. And I think that really enhanced the bargaining power uh, in many places, all the sectors you just noted. And I think a lot of companies, a lot of industries are taking notice of the UPS settlement where they got, workers got a 40% raise, something to that degree. Like it was pretty impressive, their gains. And you can tell, particularly in the auto sector, Companies are scared of what the UAW is up, up to. So I, I don't know that it's going to increase 
union, private sector union membership, to, you know, it's probably about 10% of the workforce now, 20 30%. But in certain ways, it can't. It can, and I think workers have realized they have more bargaining power than they used to. And, of course, workers are – union members are backbend, backbone of the Democratic Party in terms of political right, organizing. Right, yeah. And, and I think and that's really where it, 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 they're energized the most. And having an ally like President Joe Biden, who is a union guy through and through, probably helps a lot as well. Yeah, I, that's what I was thinking is that um, – while it might not incre- the, the incre- any slight increases in uh, union membership might not have an impact, but the fact that unions are getting more attention, perhaps this small increase in membership might give them some more money. It might give them some more uh, power to, you know, get out the vote, advertise those kind of things, which might move some voters. So right, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's definitely something to watch for uh, the coming 14 months or so until the election. <laughs> God, is it only 14 months away? Um, <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, time, either time passes quickly or it's an eternal long slog. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so this is, you know, in combination with this sort of outrage about um, abortion politics, and I mean not just abortion, but healthcare in general. Do you think those, you know, do you think that there's actually a possibility that some of these, uh, pro- I, I don't really like the term progressive, but I'm going to use it. Progressive issues are going are, might actually move some voters and and give us some maybe a little extra wins. In 2024? Yeah, I'm increasingly convinced the abortion issue moves voters. I I was not sure about that when the Dobbs decision first came down in June 2022, because you always get predictions, oh, people are going to be fired up about this and that, and it really happens. I remember talking recent years about marijuana legalization efforts in states, getting a lot of young people out to vote, and it never really worked out that way, but... Abortion is something else, and getting, well, in my own view, rights taken away from yeah. women. People don't like to get, don't like, I don't have to tell you, considering your professional activity, people don't like getting their rights taken away once they've had them. And it doesn't matter if you live in the most liberal precincts in you know, Santa Monica, California, or rural Alabama. People are people. Women are women, and men care about this greatly as well. And I, I think the fact you see that these ballot measures have won basically in favor of abortion rights in some pretty darn conservative states in Kansas and Montana, which didn't get enough mm-hmm. uh, as much attention in Ohio recently. I'm increasingly thinking it's going to be a, a motivator. I think that the challenge is is running getting it to be a motivator in blue lean states. Like it worked pretty darn well in a lot of swing states, but it was not as effective in places like New York and California, which already blue already protect abortion rights. That's not going to change. So I think strategists have to work on that, how to go after incumbent Republicans in, you might say on home turf in places like New York, California and elsewhere, where maybe you can get, they, 
Democrats can get a little complacent about it. And so I, that, that's my big read on the abortion issue. But I, I'm increasingly convinced it's going to be a motivator. Also, I just think this whole rationale of having it go state by state is never going to work. I knew as soon as that Supreme Court decision came back and even came down, even before when it was leaked, when Politico reported on it, had that great scoop, and it was clear where the decision was going, I just uh, – I think the time coming might be – you know, who knows? I can't put a date on it, but the Supreme Court's going to change, uh, change course and make it a national right again. Probably could be years before Democrats have the chance to appoint justice like that, but it's just – it doesn't work to have, be, have it legal, something as fundamental as that legal in one state and strictly illegal elsewhere. Like, it just practically and, and now, doesn't work. And now maybe hey, illegal yeah. – to leave the state. I mean, that's what they're that's talking about in I, some states. You know, that's something I'm, I'm really fascinated by in a worrying sort of way. I don't – I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer by any measure, but I can't see how you could prevent somebody from leaving the state for an activity that's perfectly legal in another state because you have every right well, to go I don't think, state to I don't state. Think that's, I don't think that that's the purpose. The purpose is fear. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, you, yeah, you make uh, the, right. you, you make, the, I mean, because a lot of, I mean, not just one, one little thing, like a lot of the uh, people who are seeking abortions are uh, poor, uh, not as well educated as some others, and mm-hmm. working jobs where they can't necessarily get away. They don't have, you know, they may not have sick time. They, most of them have families. So right. just the fear of what could happen to them is enough to stop them. And I think that's the I think that's their their point. I don't, and they'll 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 pass a, an illegal law and then right. wait for it to get fought. I mean that's that that's their MO all the time. So Well, I, I this but, is a, a little bit tangential but same basic point. I, I actually think that's the intention with a lot of these laws on abortion and trans and other such issues to basically get people who they don't like, they don't agree with just to move out of the States entirely to quote, purify their population. You see that uh, in in Louisiana and other places. Yeah. I can't prove that, but I'm absolutely convinced that's the case. That's the intention. Yeah. Josh Hawley, of Republican of Missouri said that when the Dobbs decision came out, he said, oh, okay, well, something to the effect of, oh, great, now pro-life people will stay in places like Missouri and the, and the people who don't agree will move out. And I, sadly, I think he's, he's kind of right about it. I, I think there may be an a education campaign in, element involved in this. Like if you live in, say, Utah where there's no gambling at all, one of only two states, you could still go over to neighboring Nevada and play the slots and play blackjack. Or you could go to neighboring Colorado and buy marijuana where it's also illegal. Uh, they couldn't, so you could yell from the, the top of your lungs that you're going to do that. Nobody could stop you as long as you do those activities in those states where the same thing with women have the right to travel. Uh, and I agree it's totally based on fear and intimidation. Uh, so there may be an education campaign involved, uh, which it's not, not something I've really – thought through particularly, but I think that's, you know, part of where we're going with it, like the logistics of it, how you would do that and what would be most effective. But 
I think that's going to be part of what we're dealing with, with for the next several years, for better or worse. Well, I think the the key is to just we have to elect uh, people at the state level who are more progressive and will you know get rid of these laws. I mean that's that's oh my, yeah, I, well, I totally that's always agree been on that. My, it's always been and my my mo my mo. You talk about trying to keep people in state. There's a bunch of smaller towns in Texas, like West Texas, North Texas, where they're trying to block roads being used. To, for people to go out of state for abortion services, and that's of course is strictly illegal. Roads are right, rights of ways, but you know you start getting into, you know, entrapment in that, even kidnapping in some cases. I mean, it's really quite scary. Yeah, it's. I hadn't heard about that, but I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. Yeah, yeah. I'll send. A, there's a Washington Post piece about it. It's. Uh, and it's, it's the I'll, I'll inevitable outcome of, of it, you know, eventually, once exactly. you start going down that road, you know, no pun intended. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, this was really interesting. And I will pass it to Tim. I know he has a bunch of questions for you. Sure. Um, Thank you. Good, ev- good evening, Mr. Mark. And let me start with a question that just a few days ago I could not have envisioned even asking you. But we all saw what happened to Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on what you might think would happen with these recent health scares from a political standpoint, because you are based in Washington. And and what I really want to know is, have you heard of if there's any appetite in the GOP caucus to make a move there to ease him out of leadership or something? I think in the short term, Senator McConnell is okay. He see, everything my reporting tells me from Capitol Hill is he's got a lot of loyalty. Republicans don't want to make a change. Now, you get more episodes like this, and you know, it could go in a different way. The, the challenge for McConnell is he's had both of these kind of, you know, like sort of breakdowns and problems right in front of the cameras talking to right. reporters. It truly could not have been a worse time for that to happen. Now, the, apparently the first episode happened with a concussion back at a fundraiser, of course, behind closed doors. That was in March of this year at a Washington, D.C. hotel, which we only found out about once he started having these episodes. So I don't think Republicans are really eager to move along. Also, it's kind of a in the Senate to protect your own ethos. It's why you don't uh-huh. see Democrats really going after it. And a part of the obvious retort to that is Senator Dianne Feinstein is 90 and has her own health problems. And that's generally why you don't see lawmakers really making this an issue because both sides have their issues, their problems with it. You know, I'd like, I, I do think it's going to be tougher for Senator McConnell, though, to stay in a leadership position like this. It used to be congressional leaders were behind closed doors, you know, Sam Rayburn types or, even Harry Reid more recently in the Senate, Senate Majority Leader operated that way, where he was obliged to go up before the cameras, but he did his real work behind closed doors, and he could go weeks without talking to reporters. That, that, that doesn't really work anymore, and McConnell is probably the last of the old-school leaders like that. So mm-hmm. I, I don't see any immediate threat to him, but, you know, is if the time goes on, if – there's more episodes, they might just say, like, you can't have somebody in the public eye like that. 
who's going to collapse. So this happened with, and I'm not comparing the two, but like Strom Thurmond years ago, he was deposed from his committee, Armed Service Committee chairman, and even Robert Byrd, Democrats in the late 1980s, after the 1988 election, basically kicked him to the curb as a majority leader uh, because they just needed somebody who was more telegenic and, you know, wouldn't be a liability before the camera. So there, there is a precedent for it. So the, you know, the more I think about it, I wouldn't be shocked if after this election cycle they decide to make a move, but uh, we shall see. All right. Well, now I want to jump with you all the way across the country to a state you know quite well, the the Golden State. Um, <laughs> if my fading memory serves correct, and I believe I'm correct about this, Alan Cranston left office in January of 1993, 30 years ago. Right. Right. Um, uh, and in the meantime, the year of the woman, as you know, in 92, it happened around the country. And California elected themselves to female uh, senators. And in uh, more recent times, the uh, growing political clout of uh, Hispanic and African-American voters has produced an African-American senator in California and a Hispanic senator and now along comes Adam Schiff, 30 years later, after Alan Cranston, who was the last white male to <laughs> occupy U.S. Senate seat in, in, in California. Adam Schiff, like Alan Cranston, is very liberal. Um, and uh, he's, he's uh, progressive voters re- really love Adam, Adam Schiff, although he's got some... Uh, Strong opposition out there. How about Adam Schiff? Can he win that race? Yeah, I think he, Congressman Schiff is a pretty strong favorite. He'll have spent 24 years in the House when this term is up, representing the Southern California district near where I, I'm from, actually. My parents uh, were constituents of his for his, about, his, about his first 12 years in the House before it moved. Uh, the lines got redrawn, like, so many places, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I followed his career pretty closely, and he's, I think, actually a pretty good fit for the bulk of primary voters in California, even though, of course, the Hispanic vote is so important, and the, the female voters are a, a key, and he's got one of his primary rivals is Congresswoman Katie Porter from, uh, from Orange County, who's kind of made a name uh-huh. for himself. But I think Schiff is a pretty good fit for the, you might say, mainstream liberal electorate in California. He doesn't really offend anybody. He's pretty careful. Not the most charismatic guy, but he's also become kind of a, an unlikely political folk hero to Democrats in the Trump era, where he led the impeachment against Trump, and he was the most outspoken and vocal, and Kevin McCarthy hates Schiff and his, his feelings are mutual, and Schiff can kind of wear that as a badge of honor. So I think he's actually a pretty solid fit for the state. I think the biggest challenge for him is who en- is who ends up in the second slot. Remember, California has the all party primaries and the top two finishers. No matter the party mm-hmm. face off against each other, it's not clear that there's going to be a Republican nominee that can get that far. There's some attorney who ran, I think he ran for attorney general, not a big name, 
But you got to figure, in a, you know, there's still a lot of Republicans in the state, and that might be enough to get them into the runoff. They would never win the general election. But I think Schiff's biggest challenge is trying to keep Congresswoman Porter out of the runoff because then it's a big, expensive affair, and the primary is in June, I think. So that you know, it's another five months or so of fighting to have to spend millions of dollars in a competitive race. I still think he would win. But I think that's his biggest threat is facing another Democrat in November, specifically Congresswoman Porter, although I don't want to give short shrift to Congresswoman Barbara Lee of Berkeley, who uh, is an African-American woman and widely respected mm-hmm. among Democrats, by far the furthest to the left of the three major candidates. She doesn't seem to be really in the running right now, but there's still what, nine months to go or so in that race. So uh, a lot could still happen. But uh, mm-hmm. I've got to give Schiff uh, – also his fundraising advantage is just so overwhelming. And, of course, money doesn't mean everything in politics. We all know of races where lesser-funded candidates came back from behind to win, even if they were underdogs. But in a state like California, it's just even more than Texas, Florida, New York, or even Georgia in a way. You've got – retail politicking is tough, and you've got to – Go on the big media markets, and it is just so darn expensive. You could, even with the lowest ad rate rules, you could burn through running ads in the L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, and some of the smaller mid-sized media markets. You could burn through tens of millions of dollars mm-hmm. in a couple of weeks yeah. there. So you just, mm-hmm. you know, I think his money advantage does go a long way. All right. Going to jump over a couple of states. I was going to go to Arizona, but I don't feel like Comedy Hour with Blake Masters and Cherry <laughs> Lake tonight. So I'm going to move north of there. And again, because you're, you know, uh, have the Washington connection, maybe you've heard something. And I was wondering where do things stand with Mitt Romney and more important, Will Trump supporters in Utah try to derail him at the state party convention or something, even if he decides to seek re-election? It's a fascinating question. I thought all along that he was going to run for re-election, but he's given a uh-huh. couple of uh, interviews. He hasn't said officially if he's running again. Uh, he's given a couple of interviews recently where he sort of ramped up the criticism of Trump, which, of course, he was the only Republican senator to vote against for Trump's impeachment twice. But you would think if he really wanted to win renomination, he might put a lid on it or at least not emphasize it. But I've been surprised about that. So I'm starting to have my doubts. I've talked to people there who truly don't know, but they're starting to question it because you look at some of the polling, not just the the top lines, but some of the cross tabs, the party, the state Republicans in Utah are getting Trumpier that was pro- probably the most skeptical state of Trump, where if you look at his voting margins in 2016 and 2020, he won there, but it was by lesser amounts. But it's like everywhere else, the party's gotten taken over by the MAGA forces, and it seems to be going in that direction. So I'm actually increasingly doubtful he's going to run. That's not based on a lot of inside information, more just informed speculation from people I've talked to in Utah he might have a – as you suggest, he might have a really tough time at the state party convention, and that yeah. derailed a number of incumbents. It uh, has. Senator yeah. Bob uh, – Robert Bennett there lost to the current mm-hmm. senator, Mike Lee. Uh, and he, if there had been a primary, he probably would have won. The incumbent probably would have won. 
But that's how, and it's happened in house races and other regards, some other statewide races. So it could be real tricky, the politics of those state conventions, because you get the most devoted insiders, and you could see the mm-hmm. Trump forces going after Mitt Romney specifically. So I yeah. would not be shocked at all if Romney just calls it a career, because like he probably he could say like he basically redeemed himself in a way from the losing the presidency in 2020. Of course, he didn't get to be president, but, you know, not a bad gig, retirement gig of sorts, six years as a senator from Utah, and you can just go out proudly. And I, I, you know, I think he realizes where the party is, but we, we shall see. All right. Well, I thank you, sir, for that excellent analysis, and I will send it back to David. David? Yes, well, Mar- uh, David, we have people all over the country and talk about all kinds of things. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. Before you leave our listeners, if you want to share with them where they can read your publication online, tell our listeners, and then with that, we'll get a do to you. Sure, that's WashingtonExaminer.com, and you can read my uh, my stories. I have a story list there. At my, I'm on Twitter or X, as it's called now, at David Mark DC. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Anytime. Look forward to the next appearance. Have a good night. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You too. Take care. care. Good night. Bye. Yes, you too. All right, David Mark, Washington Examiner. We have had had too long a break without having David on. He is such a well-informed guest. Thanks. Love to get him on again. Um, Tim, you mentioned, and it was kind of a planned topic, but you took care of it with David. Mitch McConnell and him freezing up again. You asked David his thoughts. What were your thoughts on what happened? Well, you 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 know when when you uh, he he mentioned Feinstein too, and, and you have to wonder, guys, if either of them is even going to make it to the next election. You you know they the, their their health is. Uh, is is not good, and I think their staffs can only protect them so much. Uh, and, and Feinstein has that committee work where she doesn't even know sometimes whether to say like uh, I, you know, when they're voting. Uh, and, and and McConnell really has a problem. He leads the caucus. He has a lot of public stuff that he's got to do. Uh, Mark David Mark mentioned that he's had these episodes in front of the cameras. Well, that can happen again because he has to speak for the party in front of the reporters practically every day. So um, I, I, I don't, I, I just don't, don't, don't know. And it brings up the age issue too, don't it? Yeah, I mean, but I watched the ninety-three-year-old property owner from um, Hilton Head Island, and they're trying to take her property. And I was so amazed, pretty right. So everybody's age is different. Some people are just really just with almost 100. And some people in their 60s, sadly, uh, start declining. So it's just all, you know, person by person. Chuck Grassley's getting older. He seems to be, you know, mentally what he was, you know, two, three terms ago. Uh, Mitch McConnell, Don Feinstein, not. Catherine, um, do you think they end up splitting the baby with Mitch McConnell, so to speak, and he um, remains a senator but steps down as majority leader? You know, I think David Mark made a really good point is that, 
you know, that they're they tend to protect each other, uh, the senators. Yeah. And uh I think that the Diane Feinstein uh situation sort of complicates it because I can imagine a conversation between senators saying, Well, you know, McConnell should really step down and the the Republican says, Well, you know, what about Diane Feinstein and then, you know, it just goes back and forth and, and then they just decide to cover it up or not 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 cover it up but, but protect each other. And uh I just wish that people would recognize that in themselves or their staff or their family would tell them that it's time. And uh and it's 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 a little bit of a humiliation to me. Like I mean, I have no fondness for Mitch McConnell, but when you see him, you know, stop talking in the middle of a sentence and then sort of look sort of, you know, a mess, you just think it's 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 embarrassing and it's a little bit heartbreaking to see that of a man who's, you know, been serving the country for God knows how long. And, you know, you may not agree with him, but it just feels like um, it was time to go a long time ago, and you should have gone. And now you're yeah, it's kind of like yeah, with both of them, it's kind of like an athlete that was you know had a Hall of Fame career and they stayed too long because you know Mitch McConnell was majority leader multiple right. times, leader of the party. Diane Feinstein, I mean, just I'm so be so sad if this diminishes her total career when. The mayor of San Francisco and Harvey Milk, who I believe was the supervisor, both got assassinated. She was thrust into leadership and just handled it incredibly, and then has served a 30-year Senate career, and 25 of those years plus were above reproach, and she did an excellent job. Let's not let the past two, three years of this Senate career ruin the rest of her legacy. Um, Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And why why well, let's, why does she oh, why does she not have advisors that recommend this or maybe she doesn't listen to them or whatever but it's just well, it's just heartbreaking to me. Apparently, there's some kind of legal problem with inheritance and property going on with her family. It's kind of like her family is having some internal stuff which I don't fully understand. But I wonder if that complicates being able to give her good advice from a family perspective. And then may complicate it for the staff because then there's some family dynamics going on. So I think that if somebody got into deep into that, they would learn more. We want to thank David Mark for coming on the show. Always great to have him on. And then next week we're having another um, longtime favorite guest from north of the border talking politics in America, but politics across the globe. Evan Scrimfall will be our guest. So until next week, it's been the Cousin Vine. Not everybody. Good night, guys. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.